Well, track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Psalm chapter 15. We really do believe that the thing we most desperately need is the voice of our risen Savior in these troubling times. And so we go to the Bible to try to hear what he has to say. And we're doing a series right now called Unshakable. Um, and it's tr- we're trying to process everything that's happening and thinking through how we can be unshakable and how we can be an unshakable church. So if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We will put the passages up on the bottom of the screen so you can follow along that way. Uh, If you want a Bible and you don't have one, we would be happy to get one to you. If you would send us a message, we can coordinate that. Um, But we're in Psalm chapter 15, and this idea of unshakable, it's really just acknowledging right now the global trauma that we're going through. And it's acknowledging that everything is being shaken, that there, there are things right now that, you know, not not literally, but metaphorically speaking, everything is just kind of falling apart. And there's, you know, there's all kinds of different layers to this thing. And, and um, it's, it's showing up in every sector, in every quarter of the world, and we are being shaken. And so we're trying to look to God and say, okay, how could we be unshaken? How can we be the kind of people who can navigate this thing and come out on the other side of it and still be in one piece? so to speak. Uh, So that's what we're trying to do. And Psalm 15 really does help us there um, because it tells us at the very end of the psalm that the person who does this thing, who lives in this way, will be unshakable, will never be shaken. So let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, in these next minutes together, as we've opened your word, we're praying that by your spirit, you would speak to our hearts. I pray for all the friends and visitors who are watching online today or will be watching later. And I just ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would be ministering to each of us. We acknowledge our neediness today. Our brokenness, we acknowledge that we have no clue what is going on in our world and how to move forward through it. So we're looking to you and we're asking for your help. And we want to be unshakable people, people who are gracious and kind, people who are godly, people who commend you to others. And so we we desperately need your help today. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how can we become unshakable? All right, so here in Psalm 15, we see that a question is asked, who can dwell in the presence of God? An answer is given, and then a promise is issued that at the very end of it, we're finding out that the person who lives in this way will never be shaken. So let's get to work, and let's follow this line of thought. The first thing that we find is a question, and it's a very, very good question. Verse 1 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? 
who may live on your holy mountain. Basically, it's saying, how can I live in the presence of you, the living and holy God? How can I align my life in such a way that I might be together with you? And really, it's a question that's kind of asking, what sorts of things would I need to do to prepare myself, to position myself, to be together with you? It's a question of, of readiness, and it's a good question that we need to ask. Um, <clears throat> a few years ago, uh, my wife and I went to a wedding in Chicago, and I didn't ask that question. I didn't ask what would be appropriate to go to a wedding in Chicago in somebody's yard. And so um, I dressed kind of casually. I put flip-flops on. I had khakis on. It was August, and so it was, I believe it was August, and it was super hot and muggy, and I knew it was a small wedding, and I knew it was at a person's home in their backyard. And so I'm just kind of piecing this stuff together and I'm thinking, okay, I'll be fine if I wear khakis and flops and a polo, and I show up. And I kid you not, I look around, and there are probably, I don't know, 50, 60 guests there. You know, maybe half of them males. All of them, I kid you not, all of them are wearing suits and dress shoes and button-up shirts and ties. And here I am, very comfortable, I might add, but inappropriately dressed for the experience. The question needed to be asked, how can I prepare myself to go into an experience like that? And that's what David is doing here in this psalm. He's saying, God, what kind of person would be able to come into your presence? <clears throat> what does that kind of person look like? What does that kind of person do? And so the question really is asking, God, how can we come into your presence and be right with you? Who could dwell in your sacred tent? Now, <clears throat> that word sacred tent, it's really hinting at something that the people of God have uh, experienced all throughout their history. God told them how to build a sacred space. He actually told them in the wilderness, I'm going to have you build a tabernacle, a tent. And here's the blueprints for it. You're going to make it out of this material and it's going to look like this. And this is the place where I'm going to place my name and my glory and my presence. And I'm going to give you all kinds of different prescriptions for how to get ready to go into that tent. Uh, I'm going to tell a certain group of people how to minister within that sacred space. And there's going to be a place even within that tent that's called the Holy of Holies. And that's going to be partitioned off from everything else. And one high priest will go in there once a year just simply to make sacrifice for the people. And there will be additional rules and additional things that that person will have to do to go into that holy of holies. So the question is a good question because it's basically acknowledging, God, there is a way to come into your presence, but I acknowledge and recognize that I need your guidance and your word and your help to know how to do that appropriately. How could I be your guest in your place? Now, that question is a very, very significant question that I want to suggest we need to begin asking right now. I'm going to say to you as a pastor, I think we are asking the wrong batch of questions. Right now, the, the, the majority of conversations that I have, we're asking good questions, but they're the wrong ones. And so if I talk to anybody on the phone or in a Zoom meeting or whatever the case might be, and we're just chatting through things, the questions that most people are asking are things like this. What do you think of COVID? How long do you think this is going to last? 
What's it going to look like when things open back up? What do you think the timeline is for that? In light of more recent events, people are asking questions about social justice and asking questions about racism, and they're asking all these different things, and they're wondering how to process the world that we're going through. And everyone is asking questions like that and should be. But what I want to say as a pastor is it is time to make an intentional pivot right now. We need to say there is a better and more foundational question that we need to be asking. And here's what it is. How can I be a guest in the Lord's presence? Now, that might feel kind of abstract right now, and you might be thinking, okay, what does that even mean? But the question that we need to begin asking is, God, how can I move through this global trauma and do it in a way where I am properly relating to you? How can I go through this global trauma asking all these other questions, but those are secondary. The main thing that we should all be asking, and if you're watching and you're a member of our campus and you're, you're a Christ follower, this is so foundational. We need to be saying, God, what are you up to in the midst of this? And how can I be sure that I am relating to you in a way that is pleasing? How can I be a guest in your presence. Another way to put it is, what does the Lord require of me in this moment? Begin asking that question. Make that pivot away from just kind of evaluating the circumstances toward thinking through your relationship with God and allow that to inform all of the other conversations that you're having. Now, let me illustrate what this looks like for you in real time. The author of this psalm, David, he had kind of a very fascinating life. He went from a shepherd boy to a king, and he had different seasons in his life where he experienced prosperity as a king and all of the benefits of royalty and those sorts of things, but he also knew difficulty and hardship and, and what it was like to be um, on the run because people were trying to execute him. And there was a season in the, toward the end of his life, and this is from 2 Samuel chapter 16, there was a season in his life where he had a son who, who was trying to win over the nation and take over leadership. And he discerned that that was going on. And so he and his, David and his friends actually had to quickly leave the royal city of Jerusalem. They had to leave the palace and they had to go and, and, and pursue shelter and safety in um, caves. They had, to, they had to live then in remote places and they had to hide from this son who was going to do harm to David, and, and they were on, on the run. And the story, as it's unfolding, David and his friends and his advisors are marching out of the city, and a guy named Shimei comes out, and he begins to harass David and his friends. He begins to call down curses on David, saying, you had this coming because of the way that you mishandled your, your predecessor. You, you mishandled Saul and his family and, and he's taking rocks and he's pelting the people with rocks and he's kicking up dirt and dust on them and he's verbally harassing them. And it's very, very fascinating because the way that David responds reveals that he is not simply asking kind of those superficial questions of why on earth is this happening? What on earth should I do here? What's the strategy here to deal with this, this punk? But one of his one of his friends, who's a military person, says, David, why are we putting up with this guy? Why don't I just go over and strike him down? And then we don't have to worry about his, 
you know, accusations and his hostility toward us. This is obviously, you know, something that we don't have to put up with. And David says, no, no, don't, don't lay a hand on him. Maybe this is something that God told him to do. And, and I find, when I read that story, I find it so fascinating because, you know, the, the mentality that most of us have is um, we say things like this, how dare you? I, my, my five-year-old started saying that. It's such a bizarre thing to hear a five-year-old. And he's, he's teasing, but he's saying, how dare you? And he must have heard it on a show. But that's the posture that we often have where we, we're saying, how dare you? And, and we begin to ask, what should we do about this? This is, this is uncomfortable. This is inappropriate. This is not right. And we, we, we're asking questions that, that often don't reflect what God wants us to do. But here's how David replies. This is 2 Samuel 16, verse 12. This is how David replies. He says, It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. That's a very odd thing to say when somebody's pelting you with rocks and you're walking and running for your life, really. And he's just saying, look, we're going to put up with this. We're not going to take matters into our own hands. We're going we're to, here's what he's really saying. I'm going to live under God's leadership in this moment. In other words, here's what I'm suggesting. The, the, the question that I think is kind of going on in the heart of David is he's saying, how can I live in the presence of God in this moment? The circumstances are awful. It's not fun to have somebody throwing rocks at you. It's not fun to have somebody harassing you. But David is saying, in this moment, what's most important to me is not my legacy. It's not my comfort. It's not dealing with this problem. The most important thing to him in that moment is saying, I want to live in the presence of God right here, right now. So let's make that shift. Let's be people who begin asking that question and repeatedly ask it, how can I live in the presence of God as his guest today? And I don't know what the circumstances are going to be like moving forward, but come what may, in the midst of this global trauma and all of the different experiences within that, we need to be individuals who are saying we're going to live in harmony with God because that would be the most pleasing thing to him. So let's do that. Let's be those kinds of people. So we find the response then to that question in verses 2 to 5. The response to the question uh, really is, if you want to live in God's presence, you have to be living in a way that's pleasing to God. It's, it, it's actually answered earlier in the Psalms in a negative way. If you just look back at Psalm 5, it puts it like this. Psalm 5, verse 4 says, for you are not a God who's pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. It answers it negatively back there in, in Psalm 5 verse 4, where it's saying, what kind of people live in close proximity to God? You, you are a God who is not pleased with wickedness. With you, evil is not welcome. He is a holy God, and therefore anyone who is invited into his presence, welcomed as his guest into his holy tabernacle to live together with him on his holy mountain, will be a person who begins to reflect something of the character of God. And so that's what we want to try to be in this moment. We want to try to be people who are living in step with our holy and awesome God. We want to be people who are making decisions that reflect God's beauty. 
So, so we want to be people who are ethical, who are godly, and, and it really ought to affect everything about us. Look at, look at verse 2 at the beginning. It says, in answer to that question, who can live together with you? Verse 2, the one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. The person who's going to live together with God in his holy tent as his guest, that person is going to actually begin to display something of God to the watching world. They're going to walk. It's a way of life, not just a, it's, it's like saying there's this path that they're walking and it's revealing something of God and his goodness. It's blameless and they're doing what is righteous. And that's going to show up in a variety of different ways. Um, in verses two to five, we kind of get a list of all these different aspects of a person of character. And <clears throat> we'll go through them kind of quickly, but I just want to kind of stay at the 50,000 foot level as we work our way through them because, because I think, you know, we, we really are beginning to shift, hopefully, the way that we're thinking about this moment and how to respond to it. And, and most of us maybe aren't ready for the nitty gritty specifics of how it's going to play out. And next week, Lord willing, and coming weeks, we're going to talk very pointedly about what we can do and what it does look like to be a person of character. But here, I just kind of want to sketch this broad brushstroke picture of what it looks like to be a person of integrity. So it shows up in our speech. Look at verse 2. Um, those who speak truth from their heart. A person who is walking with God, who is living in God's presence, the way that they communicate will begin to reflect God's own communication patterns. They will be people of truth. And this truth will be something that is actually coming from this deep place within us. And I want to suggest to you in this moment, as I observe how we're all processing these different things, most of how we deal with the world right now and most of the way that we communicate right now is very superficial. Our understanding of truth is secondhand. We read reports or we watch a couple of videos or we watch news media outlets and we do these, you know, we're just kind of skimming over these things and we're reading an article quickly and then we're posting the truth about what we believe is happening in our world right now. That is not what is going on here. This is truth from the heart. This is truth that really does reflect God's standard and God's voice. And you're not going to get this by skimming social media feeds or watching YouTube videos or even turning on the news. Journalism is not the place right now where we're going to find this firm foundation of truth. God's word is the place where we're going to find truth. And we need to be people then who are able to communicate very sensibly, very calmly about what God does and doesn't say from the heart. And so if you've not made a habit or a pattern of reading the scriptures, I do want to encourage you to do that, that you would figure out some kind of rhythm or pattern where you would begin to interact with God beyond just watching sermons on Sunday mornings, but you would begin to listen to his voice so that you would be able to speak truth into this moment where we so desperately need it. So the way that we display our integrity shows up in our speech will be truth tellers who are careful with our words. Look at verse 3, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. Can we honestly say that our speech right now is measured and careful as we begin to speak and post and write and 
offer communication to even close family members and friends, can we say that we are offering and uttering no slander, that our words are actually constructive, that we would do no wrong to a neighbor in the way that we think about them or speak about them, that we wouldn't begin to look at somebody with a different opinion from us and treat them as a vile and wicked person, but we would be careful with the things that we communicate, that we would be careful not to cast slur on others. Can your communication be gracious and constructive? Can your love actually inform the way that you communicate with others and about others? So we need to reflect this godliness and the way that we communicate and the way that we post online. We need to be truth tellers who are gracious and compassionate and gentle and loving and careful and nuanced and all of that stuff. And I see very little of that in our world today. Well, the beauty of living in harmony with God will show up in relational ways in verses three to five. We need to be careful with our relationships. Midway through verse three, it says, we do no wrong to a neighbor. We need to be the kind of people who are looking on fellow human beings with this posture of desire for their good, that we would, we, we would pursue good for them, and we would acknowledge when we fail to do good that they deserve. We need to be people who care for our neighbor. We need to be people who are honoring those who fear the Lord. If you look at verse 4, it puts it like this, who despise a vile person but honor those who fear, fear the Lord. And, and I want to show you here that that, you know, some of us are saying, there we go, there's our verse for right now, despising a vile person. And we would take that and we'd proof text it and kind of pull it out and say, okay, this gives me the liberty to be angry and to look at other people who are wicked and vile and to, you know, be disdainful of them and to speak contempt over them. But, but honestly, this is sandwiched between this other reality that's saying, verse 3, do no wrong to your neighbor. And then at the end of verse 4, honor those who fear the Lord. And it'll spell out what that looks like for different people in verses 4 and 5. So let's be careful that we don't take that little partial verse and say, this is how I'm going to handle things right now. I'm going to despise people. I'm going to despise people. No, let's be people who do wrong to, do no wrong to our neighbors and honor those who fear the Lord and are careful in the way that we're relating to people. We have to be people who have integrity. Look at the end of verse four. We keep oaths even when it hurts and we do not change our minds. We are going to do what is best for other people even when it's hard. And this is a moment that's really exposing some, some kind of wacky ideologies. And, you know, we do have obligations that we have made as individual Christians to, to love each other. And we cannot renege on that stuff now by saying, look, this is hard, and so I'm just going to stop doing that. We want to be people who keep our oaths even when it hurts and not change our minds. We want to be people who are displaying Christ-likeness in all that we're doing because we have this integrity about us. We want to be people who are doing good for others. Look at verse 5. It says, we lend money to the poor without interest. We do not accept a bribe against the innocent. This is describing what it looks like to relate to people who are disadvantaged. And the, the whole way of life that God outlines in his word is that we, his people, need to take concern for that. And we need to organize the way that we do things in a way that actually helps people who are disadvantaged. 
that when we lend money to those who are impoverished, that we would do it without charging interest, that we would not accept bribes and give favor to or preference to those who have status or those who have resources, but that we would show no favoritism. And actually what I find in the scriptures, it's really a preference toward the poor. And so I want to be a person and I want to be a church where we are careful in our relationships with others, that we would do good for those who are in need. So here's my question then, church. How are we doing at this? If the question is, who can live in the presence of God? And the answer is, those who are walking in step with him. Here's our question then. How are we doing at that? Are we living currently in a way that is pleasing to God? Are we displaying his character to the world? I was having a conversation uh, recently, and, and um, this way of righteousness that's being outlined for us here in Psalm 15, it's really the way of Jesus. If you look at the, the life and ministry of Christ, he is the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous. He is the one who deals with people in this way all the time. And what do we find in the life and the ministry of Jesus? We find this magnetism toward him. And it's not magnetism of religious people toward Christ. They're actually appalled at him. We find this magnetism toward Christ by the unlikely and the undeserving. We find sinners in the presence of Jesus. And it's really offensive to religious people who are trying so hard to be good. But Jesus is compelling to the broken and the needy. And they're drawn to him like, like a magnet. And, and so I want to suggest to us that we need to be the kind of people where broken people are, are gravitating to us because we are living in this way. We're careful with our words. We're kind toward other, we're, others. We're doing good where we can. We're caring for our neighbors. We're looking after the disadvantaged. We're doing all these things for God's glory. Church, are we doing that right now? If somebody were to examine your life and examine the way that you're talking about and processing all these different things, are they going to be drawn to Christ or... This is unfortunate. Will they be repulsed? Will they be repelled from God and his followers? I want to be the kind of person and I want to lead the kind of church where we live beautifully before a watching world. And the way that we deal with the circumstances and people will actually commend God to them. We'll live in a way that's so beautiful that people will glorify God on the day that he visits. Let's be those people. And let's repent of failing to live up to that in this moment. And let's move toward God's good desire for us. So the third thing we see here then is a promise. It comes at the end of verse 5. And the promise is that those who live as guests in God's presence will live in a way that's pleasing to God, and therefore, they will never be shaken. Look at verse 5. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Uh, one of my Old Testament professors, he puts it like this, the reward of wisdom, and that's what this is getting at. Psalm is a, is a book about wisdom. What does it look to live wisely with God? And the reward of wisdom is God's pleasure, his presence, and his blessing in life. That's what the end of verse 5 is suggesting. When you live in harmony with your maker, you can be unshakable. 
you can experience a friendship with him that actually makes you very invincible. In the midst of calamity, you can be going through things like David earlier. And, and again, this is not suggesting that if you live this way, you're, you're immune from hardship. But sometimes you'll walk right into it and people will be pelting you with rocks and they'll be harassing you and you'll be able to have this gospel confidence about your, you and it will be exhausting as you know, 2 Samuel 16 goes on to say that when they arrived, they were covered in dust and they were spent. They were exhausted. But having gone through the trauma of what we're experiencing right now, there is a way to live in harmony with God that's rewarding, that's gratifying, that is unshakable. Everything else can be falling down around us, but if we're walking with God, we can be invincible people. And that's what I want for you. So the promise comes at the end of the passage here, and it's telling us that we can have this sort of experience with God. But then uh, I guess what I was doing this week was I was asking myself, how does anyone really lay claim to this promise? I mean, who of us can look at Psalm 15 and say, guys, I'm doing a stellar job at this. I'm walking blamelessly. I'm righteous. I'm doing everything that God is requiring from me. Who of us can honestly look at the Bible and say, man, we're, we're just doing an excellent, a superb job at this. Most of us, we want this. We understand this standard to be good, but we recognize that we fall short of it. And even in our best efforts at trying to do these things, we still fail to live up to them. And that's really what the whole Bible tells us. The whole Bible is designed to show us that there is a righteous standard that God has given us. We find it here in Psalm 15. We find it in the Ten Commandments of God. We find it in the sermon that Jesus himself gave, which really was an explanation of the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, where he begins to kind of show us what it looks like in real time to live out the way of God. We see it all over the place, but the Bible really does seem to suggest to me that nobody is capable of doing this in their own strength. But God has graciously given us a way to welcome us into his presence and then help us along the way. So the only person, as I understand it, the only person who could read Psalm 15 and say, I've done everything required here is Jesus himself. He's the only one who's able to say, I have lived in the presence of God and I have come into the presence of this holy and awesome God and I have displayed this godliness in every aspect of life without flaw, without blemish, and I've done that for you. That's exactly what the Bible is about. It, it is inviting us to be God's guest and he welcomes us in and he does that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses and all of the scriptures is 1 Peter 3.18. And it kind of tells us, you know, if we want to get into the presence of God, if we want to get into that temple, how do, we, how do we do that? And in 1 Peter 3.18, it tells us, it says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What is that saying? It's telling us that Jesus did what was righteous, he was the righteous one and we're the unrighteous people, but he, what he did actually gets us in. What he did for us in our place actually brings us to God. It's really incredible. We, we no longer have to go to a holy city, to a royal mountain, to a special sacred place to try to find God in his glory. 
Jesus has made that available to us wherever it is that we are. You're watching from home or in your yard or wherever it is that you might be today, but Jesus has made a way for us to come into the presence of God himself. This promise is for us today. When Jesus came to this world, John, one of the followers of his, he wrote it this way. He described it in this way. He says, the word Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus came to us, and it uses that same word that, that's in Psalm 15 of this sacred tent, this dwelling, this tabernacle. And here John is saying, God came to us. Jesus came to us. He made his dwelling. His, he set up shop. He set up his tent with us. It's really fascinating that when Jesus went to the cross, he was pierced. He was nailed there. And it tells us in, in the Bible that he gave up his spirit, that he he declared it is finished. He said from the cross, it is finished. And when he had given up his spirit, the whole world was shaken. There was an earthquake, a literal earthquake. And the sky goes dark and, and everything's kind of falling apart. But here's what it says in, in the Gospels, in the Bible about that event. It tells us that that tabernacle that David you know, marched around with, that sacred space, that sacred tent where people would go to experience the the glory of God and the presence of God. It ended up becoming this permanent feature in their land. And, and Jesus, when he went to the cross and he died and everything was shaken, the Bible tells us that the Holy of Holies, that very, very special place within the temple, there's a curtain that partitions it off from everything else. It's there that the high priest goes in once a year. But here's what happened according to the scriptures. That curtain was ripped into top to bottom. And here's what I think that's pointing at. Here's what I think is going on there. What, what God is declaring to us is, if you want in his presence, Jesus has made that abundantly available to you today. Through his cross work, through his atoning sacrifice for us, his willingness, the righteous for the unrighteous, to die in our place, to suffer in our place, through that, he brings us to God. He makes God available to us. So as we consider these things today, we need to be asking, what, is God, what does God want from us in the midst of all of this? How can we live in harmony with him? Well, the answer really is Jesus Christ has made us able to come close to God. He draws us in. He welcomes us in as his guest. He brings us in. We're not really dressed for it. We're not suitable for it. But he says, I'll bring you in. I'll make provisions for you. I'll give you what you need. Here, here we are. And then here's what we can do. We can live in a way that displays that beauty to a watching world. So let's believe in Christ today. Let's trust in his work for us. And let's then begin to engage with a broken world in a way that commends our redeemer, our fixer, our savior. Let's do that, please. So let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, I'm asking as a pastor who's leading a church, I'm asking God that you would be doing a redemptive work in our church. We're, we're admitting, God, that things are being shaken. We are shaken right now. The things that we drew comfort from before feel like they're falling down around us. And so the only thing that we can do in this moment is look to you and we're grateful that you speak over us and you show us what, 
what you're like and what you're doing. And, and, and I'm asking God that you would take our, our people, myself included, and that we would just go after you in this moment. That we would, by faith, claim the promises of Christ and his work on the cross for us. And it would be so transformative in us that we would begin to live in a way that looks and smells a lot like Jesus today and alive in our world. And we're not doing a great job at that, God, so we confess that and we repent where need be and we ask for renewed strength and renewed anointing so we could display Christ to a watching world. Help us to do that. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.